Job chapter 38 is where we turn this morning. At long last, perhaps, in your perspective, because it's at the end of this book and we are getting to hear God speak himself. If you had a red-letter Bible, I suppose these words could be in red. But you know, every word of God in the scriptures is God's word. Even those words that quote the friends, the friends' perspective, even those words that quote Satan and his perspective, it's God's word because it's an accurate account of history. It's an accurate account of what happened, and it helps us understand what is God doing in this world, and how do we understand him? So insofar as we have listened to Job speaking and the other friends and Elihu speaking, we want to, of course, listen to what God is speaking to us and to recognize, wow, he did answer Job. He answered all Job's questions, all Job's accusations, and just Job went at home peaceful, understanding everything. No, not at all. That's not what happened. Job did not have pretty much any answer to any question that he asked, except to underscore the fact God is God, not you. There are so many people that want to look for a vacancy in the Trinity and say, I'll step up. I, you know, I've, I've got it pretty well figured out. I know what's going on. And I just wish that God would listen to me for once. Well, he does listen to you, but he's still God. And he is overall, and that is the truth, that's the lesson that Job had to learn. Because he started so well, back in chapters 1 and 2, he started so well, recognizing God gives, he takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, the name of Yahweh, and then he says, we're going to accept the, the good things and the bad things, the, the, the prosperity and the adversity. Of course, God is over all these things, we should give thanks to him. But he kind of got off the rails as, as, as uh, time went on, he, he was just encumbered with pain and uh, relational issues and, and of course he was destitute and all these calamities had befallen him and he said I mean he re realized or, or rationed that somehow that God was not attentive to him somehow God had forsaken him somehow God was was picking on him and being doing injustice toward him uh, had uh, forsaken Job and that concerned him that relationship concerned him even more than the loss of his stuff forget about the stuff where's God and so even the kindest thing that God could have done to Job is not take away the boils and heal his body and restore his wealth. The kindest thing that God did was to come and speak to Job directly. In fact, we turn to Job 38 and verse 1. We see, then Yahweh, then Yahweh answered Job out of the whirlwind, and he said. So we've, we've seen this kind of phrase before. You know, Eliphaz rose up and he answered Job and said, and we heard Bildad talk about these things, and we heard Zophar talk about these things, and obviously Job would answer the friends and he would say certain things. But here is God coming to speak to Job. Job is, or excuse me, God is not responding so much to Job's demand. Remember in chapter 31, he says, let the Almighty answer me. 31 verse 35. God took his time. Remember there's, there's chapter 31 and then there's 32, 33, 34, 35, 36, at 37, forgot about that one almost, and then 38, now God appears and he answers Job. God is not bound to Job's demands. He's not bound to, you know, give me justice, all this kind of thing. But God in his mercy did. He came down to speak to Job. Notice as we read through this text, God does not condemn Job. God does not say, well, Job, obviously you sinned and therefore you're suffering. That's the answer of the, of the friends. Yahweh does not condemn Job as his friends had done. And Yahweh doesn't at this point set the other friends aright. 
He will later, in chapter 42, but he is there to challenge and even inform Job's worldview, his perspective on the world. As you look through these these things, maybe you've read ahead or you're familiar with this passage, so many people say Job uh, chapter 38 is their favorite passage of scripture, and maybe it is yours, and hopefully I won't ruin that for you this morning, but to recognize, wow, God is there challenging and reproving and refining even Job's perspective on the world. How is God really active? Because obviously things have happened to me have not fallen out. You know, the lines have fallen out to me in pleasant places. That's not what Job is saying. It's bad. And where's God? And so God is there to reveal, look, I'm over everything. Everything about creation is mine. Because that even came up in the in the course of our conversation, Job 3 through 37, that, well, God just doesn't run things very well. He's missing things. He's asleep on the job or he's picking on the wrong people. And God says, excuse me, let me tell you, can you can you do this? Do you know this? He answers, asks all these different questions. In fact, it really, at the end of this, we should say, can we know anything? Do we know anything about anything? Uh, It's not even that we know the answers to the questions. We don't even know the questions a lot of times, what to ask about things. And and God prompts or promotes all these different questions to show the limits of Job's knowledge. He was a righteous man, of course, feared the Lord and turned away from evil, but he just didn't have a a firm grasp on reality, which is what Job accused God of of having a a failure in. And so we recognize that God is, is showing these things. He focuses not on the morality, not on the wicked so much. The wicked do play into this conversation, but he's saying, can you do this over all creation? Do you know where this is? Uh, do you know about this? Can you, in your power, in your wonderful insight, the ancient years that you have, can you explain this? And of course, uh, the answer is not, Job, Job's answer is not, I don't know. The answer is as Ezekiel, remember Ezekiel had the answer, um, can these dry bones live? And his answer was the correct one. If you want to have a, a, a good answer to the question God asked, do you know about these things? The answer is, surely you know. God. Surely you alone know these things. And that's what God is bringing Job to recognize. He hasn't got it all figured out. It's God himself that figures it out, has it figured out, and doesn't figure it out in the course of of time, you know, discovery. God already knew it from beginning. There are two speeches that God presents here in chapters 38 to 41. The first one, really umbrella category talks about God omniscience, God's omniscience, God's uh, uh, all-knowing. Omni means all and science means knowledge or knowing. So God knows everything, every possible thing God knows. And not just having discovered it, but established it. He, he made it this way and acts, everything acts according to his plan. Uh, first two chapters are referring to that. The last two chapters refer to God's omnipotence or omnipotency. He is all-powerful. He has all strength to do everything that he wants to have done. He does it. So God's omniscience, God's omnipotence, which again challenges the what Job had been saying, that either God doesn't know what's going on, he's somehow not aware of these things, and he's, he's really, you know, he, he can't uh, affect or afflict the wicked because he's afflicting me so much. All of his attention is, gained, is put on me, and I don't even have time to swallow my spit. It's just he's picking on me and not bring, bringing justice to the wicked. And God says, I know everything. I know everything, and I can do everything in my power, not in your time, not according to your a sense of justice, which is informed by God's justice, but can be faulty. God is challenging him. We see that God is speaking, again, to invite these 
this Job and his friends and the whole community that's gathered around for this wonderful debate going on, that he's inviting them, hey, come and bow at my feet because you don't have it all figured out, but I do, and you can trust me. You can find your rest in me. There are several different questions that God asks. In fact, uh, given on different translations, English translations of the Bible, they're anywhere from, uh, of the translations I looked at, they're anywhere from 67 to 84. So 67, a lot of questions that God asked of Job. Most of them by far are in chapter 38. And so we'll see lots and lots of questions that God asks. There There are questions in each of these chapters, but we see anywhere from 67 to 84, and maybe your translation is a little bit different. You just look at these questions that God asks. Well, what, what kind of, how does he introduce these questions? The question is like, hey, Job, can you? Or, hey, Job, who has, and you go fill in the blank, and where is this? Where, where do you do that? And when did this happen? And when is it going to happen? And have you ever, Job, have you ever in your life and what about this? And God is asking, Job, you know, you tell me, you answer me. And then he says, from whose, from whose hand, from, from whose command or whatever, do you, do you know, do you, did you do this? Will you, will you do this? I mean, do you even have the capacity? Do you even know this, but can you do it? Is it by you that these things happen? Or is it at your command or your will or whatever that these things happen? And again, Job would have to say, no. No, that's not me. But you, you know, you can do those things. You have done these things. You know where that is. You know how to do this. You know when to do this. You, you know, God. And that's what Job has to recognize to come to that realization. I should say that after each speech, Job's, excuse me, God's first speech, there's a response from Job, and then God speaks again, and there's another response from Job. The reason, various reasons, I suppose, for, for God's Yahweh's two speeches are that Job's first response, it didn't cut it. It did not pass muster. wasn't sufficient. Job basically says, I already, I've spoken once. I'm not going to speak again, which can be wisdom, right? Just shut your mouth kind of thing. Listen. But he did not give honor to God. He did not extol and praise and agree with God. And so his first response in chapter 41, or chapter 40, excuse me, was not sufficient. And so his response in chapter 42, which we'll look at sometime later, did give honor to God, did recognize I am under, God is over, he knows everything, I've got to rest in that knowledge. In this beginning of chapter 38, there are three sets of three. And different people organize as they've done. It's interesting how much uh, discussion, how much disagreement, how uh, all honoring the scriptures, of course, but saying, yeah, I think of it this way, or this guy says, I think of it this way. So I'm presenting you what I've discovered and hope that it's helpful to you and put it in, in the milieu, the, the mix of other teaching you've had on, on these chapters, and ultimately give glory to God, bow down to him, recognize that he is over all things. As God develops his argument, he focuses first on the physical world, what we see, this the, even the inorganic elements of creation, from the heavens to the sky to the earth to the sea to the depths of the sea. So we see him focusing on the physical world, and the first of the three sets of three, each of these, in, each of these elements has three elements under it, but he speaks about the majestic structure. How is this whole thing made? How, do, how did God design it in the first place? And then the extreme scope, again, from the heights of heaven to the, to the to the sky, to the depths of the earth. He has made it majestically, or to be majestic, but he's also 
made it so diverse, so that that so diverse in in scope and size and and ability to interact with, such that Job should recognize. I don't know anything about this majestic structure or this extreme scope. I've never been to the out there or down there. Never. But God knows. And then finally, this third of three, God manages it precisely. He has precise management over the physical world. And I don't know how far we'll get this morning. We'll get a little bit, uh, see through any of these things. But you see that there are three groups of three going forward. God is saying, this is my world. I've done all these things. I know the extremities of it, the extreme scope of it, and I can manage it. I take care of it intricately, immaculately. I mean, just tremendously, God's uh, action over the world. And so we look at, actually, let's look at, before we get to those verses, let's look at uh, chapter 38 and verse 1 again. Yahweh answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, again, we see that it's Yahweh, Yahweh who speaks. Yahweh is the one, his personal name. We see the name, several names in this account have been the Almighty or just God or uh, maybe sometimes Lord, but Almighty is probably the primary uh, term used to refer to God. Here we have his name, his personal name which we saw often, repeatedly, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, and maybe, and there's some discussion whether it was a, a accurate use of the, of the name in Job 12 and verse 9, where Job is speaking. But what is interesting, only in the narrative sections, which is chapters 1 and 2, you know, describing what's going on, and then at, in chapter 42, and of course God's own speech, do we see this covenant name, this, this personal name of Yahweh. And it's only in the words of Job. The friends don't use this name, Yahu. Yahu. Yahu is another way. I'm not, it's not the tech company. Yahu. Okay. Let me just tell you this. So many names in scripture, like, um, uh, let me think of one. Zakaria. Zakaria. We have a problem in English because there is no J in Hebrew or Greek or Latin. And so when that Yod in Hebrew is translated, it's, it's, it's an I. But it's really a, a, it's the beginning of Yahweh's name. In fact, so many times in Scripture you see, well, you know the word hallelujah, right? Hallelujah means praise God. Yah is that name. It's an abbreviated form of Yahweh. It's Yah. When you see Yah in like Zechariah, we say Zechariah in English, but it's Zechariah. Zechariah, the name Yahweh. In fact, it means Yahweh remembers. And so Yahoo is another way, another ending of that divine name in people's um, names and other places too. So when I say Yahoo, I'm not saying crazy. I'm saying it's God. God is one who speaks. And notice he speaks. He doesn't just come down and, and, and hover over and be kind of ominous. I mean, that's, the storm does that enough. This tremendous uh, windstorm or whatever it is that has come down and, and there's this. But then God speaks to his, his person. And notice he answered Job. It wasn't answering the friends. It wasn't answering Elihu, of whom we've just listened to six chapters of, of his speech. Elihu came, did his thing, and left. We heard nothing more about him. God is talking to Job. He is setting Job correctly, setting him right. And through Job, then all the other people will be set right as well. Job is so much uh, a leader, an example for us, kind of out of our league, right? He's the greatest of the sons of the East. He's um, upright, blameless, fearing the Lord, turning away from evil. He is rich beyond imagination. He has all these connections. And we can identify with him just a little bit. The extreme prosperity he had, was corresponded to the extreme adversity that he endured and the extreme 
revelation that God provided to him. So God is answering Job. He's answering directly. He is giving this revelation to one individual, but for, thankfully for the benefit of all. And he speaks out of this whirlwind. Uh, chapter 40, is it 41? 40, maybe 41. Where does he say? I don't know. Somewhere it says, again, the whirlwind that is God is speaking out of. Now, a whirlwind, or this, this word is just storm, and it could be just like a thunderstorm or something. We think of it perhaps in, in terms of a tornado or a, some kind of twirling thing, which it could well be, but it could also just be a storm. Uh, 40 verse 6, that's where it says, uh, about the storm as well. And so we recognize, hey, God is present in these storms. That's what Elihu has just been talking about. God works in the thunder and the lightning and the rain, and he directs it where he wants to even cast down lightning wherever he wants it to exact location. And now God himself is appearing to Job in this storm. We've seen storms other times or the clouds that have come down like on the Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. We have seen it with um, the other examples. Remember how Elijah excuse me, Elijah, Eliyahu, there's the other word I was going to think of. Eliyahu is how you say it in Hebrew. Elijah in our English kind of nastiness. Eliyahu is the name. He was taken up to heaven by a whirlwind that came down and carried him right away. It wasn't the chariot that took him up, no horses of fire. It was the whirlwind that took him up to heaven. God uses storms to reveal his himself and to accomplish his will. And so God is speaking to Job out of this whirlwind, and he says, and this, this first phrase or the first sentence in, or question in, in verse two really sets the stage and, and he repeats it. And Job says, that's me. And not the first time he responds, but the second. He says, God says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now, that's not a good thing. You know, if you're in a, in a teaching kind of situation, the, the professor, the teacher's saying to you, who is this who doesn't know what he's talking about or she talking about? I mean, good grief. But God is not coming in a demeaning way. He's not coming in a condescending way. He's not coming in a way that just is going to squash Job. He interacts with him. He speaks to him and he comforts him because somehow Job thinks all the whole weight of the universe is resting upon him and God's justice is proven to be unjust in the way that Job has been dealing, has been dealt with. And so God is really setting at ease saying, God, Job, you, you have no clue. You don't know what's going on. God does not open the, the little windows and say, Hey, let me tell you what happened back in Job chapters one and two, because you obviously don't know. There's nothing of that. Did Job have benefit going back years later of reading Job chapters one and two? I don't know. It's irrelevant because Job was resting in the knowledge of God himself, not the stuff that he could add to him or take away, but in God himself. And so when Job was speaking, he was, and again, I should affirm this or reaffirm this, who is this? It's not talking about Elihu. God is not coming to, to reprove Elihu or the friends. He'll do that later, at least the friends. But he is talking to Job. God answered, Yahweh answered Job. Who is this, Job, that darkens counsel? This is the idea of obscuring what is obvious, obscuring the truth, obscuring God's counsel, not just when you get counseling or advice from people. It is God's purpose, God's plan that he, uh, by which he orders, so he makes and he operates or manages the world. And Job has been questioning that. He's been impugning God. He says, God's not attentive. He's picking on me. He's, he's not giving justice to the wicked. Uh, he, you know, I'm the one doing this. Remember Job 31? I've done this for the oppressed. I've done this for the orphan and the widow. I've, I've sought justice for this person. Where's God? God can learn some things from me. 
And Job says, or excuse me, God says, excuse me, who are you that darkens counsel? You're not adding to the conversation. You're taking away from it. If Job could just go back to his attitude in chapters 1 and, and chapters 2, chapter 1 and 2, well, he's going to do that. But why do we have chapters 3 through 37? Because it shows we can't figure it out. The worldview that says, if you do good, you'll get good. If you do evil, you'll get evil. You know, suffering follows sin, prosperity follows piety. That's not right. Because, if you don't mind the, the thing, good, good, good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. It's kind of the easy way to say it. Well, yes, but also, or and also, good things happen to bad people, and bad things happen to good people, and good things happen. You, you just interchange any of those things because we can't discern. Well, I'm going to do this, and therefore I will get this. Cause and effect. That's how the friends had solved these things. And God says, no. It's my cause and effect, nothing to do with you. There will be an ultimate day of punishment. We read it in our opening scripture reading when God himself casts away evil and all justice will be accomplished in that day. But we don't see that right now. We don't see God meeting out justice and condemnation or, or the, the punishment that is due evildoers. He's so patient. And so Job was darkening God's purpose, God's perspective, God's plan, his ordering of all questioning saying, why God? Job is not the only one. I don't know if you want to confess about yourself, but at least look at your neighbor and say, that person struggles with God's sovereignty, God's purpose and, and resolve. So many times in the Psalms, we see, God, don't you, don't you know what's going on with me? Get up off your couch. That's basically the idea. Rise up, O Lord, Kuma, Adonai, get up off the thing, get up and do something for me. And Job has that attitude that where is God in this thing? And, and even the psalmist that says, why are you so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. He will deliver you. Well, when's he going to do it? I don't know. Is it going to look like I want it to look? Probably not. Even in the time of Jesus, Jesus came. You know, so many people said, maybe this is the time when Messiah, wouldn't this be a good time for Messiah to come? Well, he came in the fullness of time. God sent forth his son. And guess what he came to do? Give victory over the Romans, of course, right? Get those tax-collecting heathens off of our property. No, because that's not the most significant problem that the Jewish people or any person has. The problem Jesus came to resolve was that separation between God and man. And so you recognize, I don't know. I know ultimately what God is going to do, but in the timing of it and in the, the order of things, I don't know. I'm going to let God be God. I pray for God to send his son again. But he has purposes. He is accomplishing on earth that we don't often see. We're going to see several examples of it in chapter 38. But Job had become so inward focused and even down focused that he could not look, look, raise his eyes to heaven except to raise his hand and say, God, when are you going to answer me? I demand a trial. I demand either you prove me I'm guilty or prove that I am innocent. And God does nothing of the sort. He says, I'm not going to answer that. He'd already said that, right? You know, this is Job is blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. So he, he, God already had that assessment. Job needs to, to recognize God knows best, rest under his hand. He is a sovereign over all. I'm going to repent, eventually is what he does, of darkening counsel, challenging God's plan and purpose. He is, you know, like this word, obfuscating or covering over or just muddying the waters. This is Job, all these words that you've said, there's just words. 
and they're challenging God and not finding finding uh, God as right in all things. Again, we looked at the idea, the friends thought that that God was right and Job was wrong. Job thought that Job was right and God is wrong. And God says, no, Job, you're right and I'm right. And how can that be? We looked at that back at on Resurrection Sunday, right? How can God be just and the justifier of those who have faith or believe in the Lord Jesus? And so we can see that God is the one who, who teaches us all these things. Who is this that darkens counsel with what? Words without knowledge. Job, you don't know what you're talking about. Got some information, and he'll even acknowledge that later in chapter 42. I've heard about you through the hearing of the ear. Kind of secondhand knowledge. And even he, he has said many times in his, in his speeches, we used to have intimate relationship, me and God. He would come not just to my worship site, but right into my tent, and we would talk, and we'd have that relationship one another. Where is God now? He is one who has spoken words without knowledge. He has, he has bought into the lies of the world, that this is how the world operates. This is how God does these things. God is basically a machine. He's mechanical. He, you know, he blesses those who ought to be blessed, and he curses those who ought to be cursed, and, and there's really nothing you can do except be a pious person, and you'll get all the good stuff. And he was believing that. And therefore, he said, well, I'm a pious person. I've done this. I've done this. I've never done that evil stuff. Where's my, where's my recompense? Where's my acknowledgement that I'm a righteous person? Job has been speaking words and words and words. Lots of words. And it's interesting how the friends kind of go back and forth, the three friends and Job. What is this just breathy, windy speech going out of you? Just so many words, Job. And, and he says the same thing back to them that, oh, uh, Bildad is the one who says, how long will you say these things and the words of your mouth be a mighty wind? Chapter 8, verse 2. And... Uh, even Elihu says, Job speaks without knowledge and his words are without insight. Job ought to be tested to the limit because he answers like wicked men. For he has transgression to his sin. He strikes hands together among us and multiplies, multiplies his words against God. Chapter 34, uh, 35. And so we see that, that he is speaking without knowledge. There is a difference between an ignorance of just, I don't know, versus a, an ignorance that is saying, I will not know. Or what I already know, I don't, I don't like that, and so I'm going to refuse everything else. There is a difference between a, a, a just a basic ignorance and a willful ignorance. Those who refuse to acknowledge. We can see this in Romans 1, for example. They have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Wait a minute. So they knew about God after all? Yes, everybody knows about God. He is creator. Everything in creation testifies there is a God. And they have chosen to set aside the truth and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, that is a willful ignorance. That is just defying truth, defying what they know is right, and, and pursuing what they want. Job is not that way. He, he wants a relationship with God. He wants to be proven righteous before God because that's the only way you can have fellowship with God. And so he, to, to be defamed, to, be, to his, have his re reputation ruined because of his suffering, because everybody in that world thought that Job is suffering because he's a sinner. And Job says, I'm not suffering because of sin. There's some other reason. I don't know why. God, there's a, a blip or something in the, in the whole universe. God is somehow, uh, he's not managing things well. And so much of what God says here, excuse me, I ordered everything right. I take care of everything rightly. Job, you can just trust me. Job was ignorant, but not willful. We get a similar situation in 1 Timothy 1 when, when Paul says, I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Not that he was uh, exchanging something. He says, Based on my information, this is how I'm acting. I don't know Jesus. He could even say in Acts 9, when Jesus says, "Who, you know, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord, that I'm persecuting? 
And so, Lord Jesus, and you're persecuting my church. So God is here saying, Job, you are darkening counsel. You don't know what you're talking about. Now, verse 3, gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you and you make me know. And you think, what are we talking about clothing all about now? Well, gird up your loins like a man. First of all, he regards Job as a man. He doesn't regard him as a worm or something less than a man. He says, look, you're, you're a fellow made in my image. You can have, you, we can think. Let's, kind of like Isaiah 1, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, you should be white as snow. And so he's saying, let's, let's have a conversation, you and me. And you tell me what you know about all these things, Job, because obviously you've got it all figured out. You can inform me on some certain, I can learn from you, Job. Teach me. Now, I'm making it sound more um, sarcastic, perhaps, than God intends. But you get the idea that Job needs to be not humiliated, but definitely humbled. He may be brought down to level. He's better than the angels, better than the, the uh, creatures, better than the, the earth and the heavens, but he is not God. And so you, Job, honor God. You gird up your loins like a man. I'm going to ask you about these things. This image of girding up loins is used several times in Scripture. It is often in relation to mourning, where people girded themselves with sackcloth, uh, and so they're, they're just mourning over something, some kind of thing. It also can be a preparation for physical activity. People would often, well, it's just how they, they dressed. They dressed in loose-fitting garments. It was hot, hot climate and, and to, to be able to sew pants together or something like that. They just had robes and, and, and garments that would go over. But if they had some physical activity to do, whether it's farming or running or any kind of physical activity, they would take their robe under their, under their legs and then bind it and tie it into their belt so now they can move more freely. And you've seen this in different de- depictions of uh, the ancient Near East or even in the time of Jesus. And uh, that's just how they did it. So they were preparing for physical activity. It's also used in relation to preparing for priestly, so very specific activity. You gird the, the priests, Aaron and his sons, with the, these different things. It's a, a way to prepare for military activity. Remember that little kind of like a comedy situation? When with kings of king of Judah was challenging the king of of the north, and the king of the north says, "Let not him who girds on his armor boast like him who takes it off." When you haven't even fought the battle and you're already boasting about your victory, you better stop it right there. And of course, we know this in Ephesians six, um, having girded your loins with truth. So there's a preparation for a military stance. Here, though, I think he's not saying, "Okay, get ready to run or get ready to you know serve in the military or you're going to be a priest to me." Although there's an element of that in chapter forty-two. But we see that God is saying, you get ready because I'm going to answer you. I'm going to question you or how does he, I'll ask you and you help me know. So he's preparing for mental activity. And he repeats this in chapter 40, verse 7, that gird your, uh, gird your loins like a man. I'll ask you and you make me know. And, and even Job responds in that way that I, I'm responding to you in that, in that sense. First Peter 1 and verse 13, P- Peter picks up this analogy as well having girded your minds for action, being sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there's a mental, hey, get ready, buckle down. We're going to have some some uh, some conversation here. A professor of mine in college always would, anytime we're getting into the kind of tough sledding kind of uh, material in the in the class, he would say, okay, gird up the loins of your mind. We're going we're gonna to go into this and you get ready for it. So God is preparing Job for this. I'm going to ask you and you make me know, which is something that Job had asked for. Remember, he, he said, look, maybe uh, I'll ask God and he'll answer me, or maybe he'll ask me and I'll answer him. Either way, it's a win-win, right? 
well, it's going to be a win-win, but not in the way that Job expects, because he's going to be brought down to the ground. He's already sitting in the ash heap, but he's going to come and say, I didn't know what I was even talking about. So God begins in verse 4. That's where we come back to our outline here. He talks about the foundation of the earth, the majestic structure of the physical world. Again, there are three elements that he mentions here, and maybe we'll end with this already. Uh, these three elements that he mentions under the majestic structure. How did he make this thing? How did he make the world? Verses 4 through 7 reads this way. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you, have, if you know understanding, who set its measurements? Since you know, or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And again, the question comes back, where were you? Uh, who set, who stretched, on what, who laid, when all these things happened. So Job, do you tell me, because obviously you, you know all these things, right? God is fo- focusing on the foundations of the earth. Now, he's, he's speaking in relation to heaven. He's going to talk about heaven in just a little bit. But he is, is speaking in one sense about the earth as a globe, but also specifically, I think, about the land part of the of the earth, the foundation of the earth, the the uh, basis of where, how do we even have any kind of land to to walk on and do things? God is saying, "Look, I did this. It's according to my plan. It's according to my purpose. I did these things, and you can't know this except I tell you." Nobody was there at creation, even when He says in verse seven, "The morning stars sang together, the sons of God shouted for joy." Do you remember from our various studies? There's God, and there's everything else. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and there's everything else. In other words, the angels, the sons of God, they're not over here. They're over here. They're not with God. They're not God themselves. They're not emanations like we studied in Colossians chapter 1. They're not, you know, you need these different layers of angels to get to the the true God. No, there's God, there's everything else. So when God talks about the morning stars, which I think is is synonymous with with his next phrase, the sons of God, which we saw back in chapter 1 and chapter 2, The sons of God came to present themselves before God, and Satan was there in their midst. Well, these are the angels, uh, defined or referred to by different names, but these are the angelic creatures that God made, and probably even before sin entered creation through Satan's rebellion. In other words, this is the time of creation when there's God, there's everything else, but God made at some point, we don't know exactly what day did God make the angels uh, to serve him and to serve his creation. I don't know. Could have been on day one, two, whatever, up to day six, when God made the angels. But at some point, they were there watching the foundation of the earth. I think it's probably day one when he made them, because he delights in worship. He delights in in sharing his glory, and he's so glorified in what he was creating. And so these these angels are are there to celebrate what God is doing. But he says, where were you? He didn't make man until day six. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? So, yeah, you were there, right? Because I, I don't remember seeing you for some reason. When I laid the foundation of the earth, he, he established it, not just uh, you know, spreading it out, but, but putting it down firmly into its place. So many times in Scripture we see this, this phrase of God uh, founding the earth. For example, Isaiah 48 and verse 13, My hand founded the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand together. They stand at attention. And here they are. Isaiah 51 and verse 13 again. Um, Yahweh, your maker, is one of you have forgotten. He is the one who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. 
And then in verse 16, he talks about founding. He was the one who founded the earth and established the heavens. And many other prophets refer to that. And the Psalms also celebrate that God founded the earth upon its place. Psalm 104 and verse 5. So that it will not shake forever and ever. God is the one who set these foundations. And where were you, Job, when that happened? Tell me, verse 4 again says, tell me if you know understanding. This phrase, no understanding, not N-O understand, but K-N-O-W, no understanding is a compound thing. You, you know all these things. You've got such great insight. You are the one who has it all figured out. Surely you know these things. Surely you have uh, the, the full appreciation, comprehension of these things that are going on. You know the import of, of, of where these pillars are set and all, and, and, and the, the, there's a whole science of, uh, I think it's called isostasy. The, the study of the balancing of the continents against the water and the, and the, the, the land that's under the water and on the mantle that everything is balanced. You know, we don't see, why isn't the, the mountains of Himalaya, the Himalayan mountains, why aren't they, you know, pushing this over here? Well, it's because of the balancing of every, God established this. He is the one who set these continents, set the foundation of the earth. He says, you don't know. Do you know these things? Tell me if you know understanding. You don't have it figured out. Do you remember it's celebrated? Many people mention this verse, the sons of Issachar in First Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. The sons of Issachar who knew, men who knew how to discern the times. They had, they knew understanding. They, they got it all figured out. They knew what Israel should do. And uh, it speaks about that. There's another example of not a theologian, although everybody's a theologian to some degree, but somebody who was so skilled in manual labor. He was a craftsman, just absolute tremendous craftsman. But how was how did he come by that? Second Chronicles chapter two talks about Huram Abi, a wise man who's knowledgeable in understanding. There's that that phrase, you know understanding. He is a knowledgeable fellow. He knows how to work in gold, silver, bronze, iron, stone, wood, and in purple, blue, linen, crimson fabrics. He knows how to make all kinds of engravings and to devise any design which may be given to him to work with your wise men, with the wise men of my Lord, uh, David, your father. This is the conversation that Solomon is having with a neighboring king. And this is a guy who, who knows how to do these things. He knows how to work with his hands. And God says, look, I'm the one who established the heavens. What have you done? I, when I set the foundations of the earth, where were you? Did you have any contribution to that whole thing? Was it by your understanding that these things happen? No, not at all. Verse six says, or verse five says, who set its measurements? Not the one who, who, it was there, and so we measure it. Okay, that's, that's about four feet. And so, yeah, no, he's the one who said it's going to be four feet. No, he says it's going to be, uh, you know, uh, some cubits and some spans and, and all these things. He is the one not just who calculated the distance, but he's the one who said it. He's the designer over all these things. He established these dimensions, the whole thing, of not just of the earth, but the whole universe is his. He says, this is, I'm the one. Who's, who said its measurements? God, obviously. You know all these things, Job? No, he doesn't. Verse 5 says, who stretched the line on it? This is like a measuring tape. Who stretched the, the uh, measuring tape to make sure that it, yeah, that's exactly what it should be. Such that God could then say, it's good. It's very good. Who stretched the line on it? God. Make sure that everything is according to God's order. Which again comes back to, to Job's challenge. Somehow things have gotten out of hand. Somehow God is, as things have, have uh, God's not paying attention anymore, or somehow this, this whole ordered creation is, is beyond God's control. And God says, excuse me, who set the line on it? Who set its measurement? Who established these things? Well, it's God himself. There's nothing, nothing at all outside of God's control in this whole situation. Who stretched the line on it? Make sure that it conforms to his 
perspective, God himself. Verse 6 says, on what were its bases sunk? This is where I'm thinking that it, it refers to the land masses, the, the continents, as opposed to the, the earth itself, because we read elsewhere that, that the, he has set the earth on nothing, right? There's no, no um, a pillar upon which the earth is set. It's, it's just hanging in space. God put it there. But the continents, the land parts of this world, are sunk. Its bases or its pillars or its, or its, its uh, roots go right into the, uh, the places where God has prepared the bases, the, the sockets for these beams and, and posts to, to come. Uh, Proverbs 8 and verse 25 says, before the mountains were settled, there's that idea of being sunk into, before the hills I was brought forth. This is wisdom speaking in Proverbs 8. And so we recognize God is the one who established these things. He is the one who set these things up. He is the one who has, at the end of verse 6, laid its cornerstone. He's the one. Now, there are three different concepts of, of stones that are in building, not so much in our day, somewhat, when you have mortar or a brick or, or stone or things. A cornerstone is something that you, you, you put down first, and it, it establishes the corner. It establishes uh, the, the place, so then the, the walls will be built up from there. Very important feature, aspect of a building. It's different than a keystone. A keystone is something that goes over an arch. It's that stone that fits right at the top and holds it together, keeps the whole thing from tumbling down. It's another stone called a, key, a capstone, a stone that goes on the top. And so he's talking about this cornerstone. He, he established the very foundation of the whole thing. He is the one who laid it. He is the one who established it. There's nothing that God has not done to make the world exactly how he wanted it to be. And then he says, look, people, people, angels, Morning stars and sons of God, they shouted for joy. They sang together in one holy choir, perhaps. The issue with this is, and so many people find issue with, with saying, you know, the, the angels uh, sang at the arrival of Jesus in Luke 2 or whichever. Well, it doesn't say they sang. It says they said. Okay. Could they say something in song, in a lyrical kind of melodic way? I think so. The two words used here, when the morning stars sang together or shouted for joy, those two words can indicate a melodic kind of a singing voice, but more um, specifically, perhaps, uh, or more generically, I guess, which are kind of opposite terms. Anyway, it can refer to just a shout of joy, a shout of happiness or rejoicing, uh, whether it's melodic or not. These morning stars are just shouting for joy, shouting for uh, the excitement of what God is doing. They are uh, breaking out in this kind of jubilation and celebrating as one. It says they sang together. Now, some people would say these morning stars sang together. Well, stars weren't created until day four, right? So did they sing, did these morning stars sing before? I don't think he's talking about physical, celestial, uh, you know, burning uh, orbs of gas and everything. I think he's talking about angels, created beings that are singing, shouting together. And the sons of God are shouted for joy. Again, recognizing God is at work here. God is doing good things. God is making a, a tremendous um, creation. He's doing it according to his design, his purpose. He doesn't have to ask us. He didn't ask us for insight or, or advice. Or, hey, you got to make sure that that's you know, straight or, or, or level plumb, what all these different terms are. Make sure that's the right length. Make sure that, that goes there. No, that goes over there. Nothing. He spoke and it was done. And all the angels did was say, yay, God. It's tremendous. Look at that. It's beautiful. And so where's Job? Well, he's not even on the scene. He doesn't know any of this stuff going on. He has no clue what God has done in this way from the beginning, the ordering of creation, and the maintenance of it. He has established the 
foundations of the earth. Well, I'll give you a hint. We'll look at it next time. Beginning at verse 8, he talks about the sea, the boundaries of the sea. Who's the one who has enclosed the sea with doors? And if you look at those verses 8 through 11, read it from the perspective of both a pre-born baby, a newborn baby, a toddler even, and recognize God put a playpen around or a little, little fence around the sea. And he says, verse 11, you come this far, but no farther, and here shall your proud waves stop. God is treating the sea, which we'll look at later. Sea is a chaotic influence overall. I mean, it's always viewed as something that's crazy and even evil. And God says, no, I created it. I put it in bounds, put it in diapers, even swaddling bands, and I take care of it. And then the third of this element is the rising of the sun, being at verse 12. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? Job, can you do that? Can you raise the sun up and can you put it to bed at night? Can you make it know its place? Can you treat it just exactly as you would treat uh, uh, an ox or, or a donkey or a sheep or something? No, you can't do that. You have no authority, no power to do that. And he even says in that context that God is not just managing the physical world. Notice in verse 13 that it might seize the ends of the world, ends of the earth, and the wicked be shaken out of it. God, even in the, in the course of bringing up a day, bringing up the sun in the morning, puts a limit on wickedness and evil actions. How does he do that? How does he do that? Because most evil crime kind of criminal type people act under cover of darkness. And Job had mentioned that earlier about they do it at night and under secrecy and all this. And God says, I'm going to put a limit on that. Job, you say that the wicked just go out of hand. They do whatever they want. I say no. Even from the very simple fact of me making a new morning, that limits what wicked people do. And so all throughout this, God is, is showing himself, Job, humble yourself. Don't walk in pride. Fear me. Turn away from evil. That's, that's the best thing you can do. But don't start thinking that you've got it all figured out. You don't know these things. You have darkened my counsel, my order. You're questioning my authority, my wisdom over all these things by words without knowledge. Thankfully, Job was listening. I think he was listening very intently to Elihu. Elihu was getting him ready, preparing Job to hear from God specifically, lessening him, saying, Job, you have piety. You're wrong about piety. You're wrong about this thing. God is going to set you right. And God does. And Job responds. And we have this opportunity to respond too, that we're not God. There's one God. We're not him. He is the one over all. We can trust him. When things are going wonderfully well, and when things are going, whoa, does God know about that? Yes. He established it from the beginning. This is how he wants it to be. And so we can join, hopefully, with the morning stars, verse 7, and the sons of God shouting for joy, praising God, extolling him, saying, God, you know what's right. You know what's best. We didn't understand at the time. We didn't think you were acting in time or, or that you paid attention to this. We know our fears were unfounded. There's nothing in all creation outside of your divine sovereignty, your wonderful omniscience, omnipotence, omniscience, all together, even in this passage. Fear God, turn away from evil, trust in him. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful for your revelation of yourself in the course of this wonderful uh, speaking from the whirlwind. We pray that we would learn the lesson even as Job did and responded in humility. You didn't, hum you didn't humiliate him. You didn't uh, cast him to scorn. You humbled him. You taught him and he learned. We're so thankful for your teaching. Thank you for your patience with us. We know that a lot of times we say things beyond our knowledge. We say things without any kind of understanding. But you are faithful 
and you are good. Please help us to honor you. Please help us to grow, to trust you all the time for ourselves, for our loved ones, for our country, for our world. The whole universe is in your hands. There's nothing, nothing outside of your wisdom or your control. Please help us to rest in you. We pray in Christ's name.